Nicodemus was a Pharisee. A Pharisee with whom we've, we've spent some considerable time as a congregation. And we've seen him to be a man who, who belongs to that number. Uh, not of the Pharisees that immediately repudiated Christ at the end of chapter 2, but, but one of that number described for us in verse 23. One who saw what Christ did in Jerusalem and who, in a sense, believed. And friend, in this text, you and I continue this dialogue between the Pharisee and Christ. But, but it's important for me to remind you that at this, at this juncture, this latter portion of the discourse, well, friend, you and I recognize that Nicodemus is quite silent. The Pharisee has come to Christ saying that he believed. He says, we, we know that you're come from God. But Christ tells him very pointedly, you must be born again. You have not received our witness. And so, friend, in this part of the text, the Lord continues that theme. Showing what the witness is that Christ gave that Nicodemus has yet to believe. Showing, really, to Nicodemus, Christ's own identity. The cause why he came. And also demonstrating very pointedly, in a way, friend, that Nicodemus, his unbelief is, is of an aggravated guilt. And like all of those who hear the gospel call and who refuse it, friend, they stand under condemnation as well. The coherence of this discourse uh, will, will take up further in our time together. But I want you to remember, friend, that as we come to this portion of the text, verses 16 to 18, you and I, of course, are acquainted with, with some, of the most sublime, some of the most sublime statements in the New Testament and indeed the Word of God. Here, as one Puritan writer put it, here you have a compendium of the gospel given to us so very clearly. It is God so loved the world. And then as you come to verse 17, verse 18, he tells us that this sending love of God this sending love that brings the Son to men. It's there for man to believe and to be saved. And as verse 17 tells us, not that the world will be condemned. Friend, what you have here is an incredible transition. Christ up to this point has been telling Nicodemus about, about regeneration the new nature that is wrought by the Spirit of grace. But now he moves to the theme of condemnation and salvation. Uh, we move, as it were, from regeneration to that theme of how a sinner is justified before the sight of God, how he escapes God's condemnation is justly due to him for his sin. This is a marked transition, sublime as it certainly is, but a marked transition in Christ's dealings with the Pharisee. And I want us to notice Friend, that central to this transition is this offer. The offer that whosoever will, as you see in verse 15, in verse 16 as well, they who believe will not perish. Whosoever will may come. Now friend, as we look at this text, what you and I are also reminded of is what you have in verse 18. It's not merely an offer, but it's an offer that has subjoined to it that warning. 
He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Therein is the warning. Friend, what the text is teaching us here is that as Christ offers himself to sinners, to the whosoever, verses 15 and 16, that offer comes with it, well, comes with that offer an obligation, a serious obligation that sinners are to recognize, such that if they refuse, their condemnation is spelled so very clearly. They are condemned, not only for the sins which they've committed prior to the hearing of this gospel, but they stand condemned also because of their unbelief. They're culpable for not believing. And so, beloved, as this text teaches us, so we're reminded that souls are obliged to take Christ's offer. Souls are obliged to take Christ's offer. And I want us to look at this under three headings. I want us to look at, first of all, the assurance that lies behind this offer, the acquittal that Christ has in view, and I want us to close with a consideration of the arraignment of unbelief that we have in this passage. The assurance is one of those elements in this text, friend, that I think we could quickly overlook. Again, the text is familiar to us. So uh, allow me just to remind you, friend, that, that up to this point, there's been no mention of the love of God, save what you have in verse 16. The focus has been on what God has done, not, as it were, why God has done it. In verse 16, we have that first explanation. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. Now, verse 16 stands very clear, very straightforward. I want you to notice that in verse 17, Christ says the same thing, but he says it in the negative. He says that God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. Now, in its substance, friend, what verse 16 and what verse 17 are saying are the same. So one asks the question, why? Why is it that we have this repetition if, in fact, the two verses are essentially saying the same thing? Now, it's at this point that the higher critics, they argue, well, here, obviously, there's a dissonance in the text, and therefore, uh, this is an interpolation. Uh, This is not part of Christ's discourse. We don't need to go there. We shouldn't go there. You see, friend, what this text is doing is it's showing us that Christ would assure the Pharisee that God sent his son to the world out of a love for sinners. Why is that important? Why is that important? I want you to think about what Nicodemus has been taught thus far. There are two things that the Pharisee has been instructed in. The first thing that he's been instructed in is man's utter need for regeneration. And then, on top of that, secondly, the Pharisee was told that this man is absolutely dependent upon the grace of God to effect that change. Now, if you are the Pharisee listening to this, if you're hearing these things, thinking about these things really for the first time, you won't have a question about God's ability to do that work, will you? You know that God is able to effect these things. There's no question there. But surely, friend, and and I'm sure that even many in this room know that experience, surely one could leave that doctrine not asking a question about divine ability, but of divine willingness. 
Is God disposed to work the saving grace for sinners? Is God willing to save sinners? You see, friend, in the first portion of this discourse, Christ explains to the Pharisee very pointedly what God must do by omnipotent grace. Whereas in this text, the Lord discourses powerfully that not only is God able to save sinners, he is lovingly disposed to the work. So he emphasizes God's love. He sent his son to the world out of love, that that those who believe would be saved. He sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, verse 17. All of this to emphasize that God indeed is disposed to save sinners. Now, as you look at that word world, I want you to notice, friend, that all of our comments that we made in verse 16 certainly stand here, but, but it is striking. It's striking, and I think Calvin's very helpful here. The word world is again repeated. He says that no man may think himself wholly excluded if he only keep the road of faith. Now, we'll come back to that theme in just a moment, but, but the sense of this text then is that Nicodemus would be assured that God's saving purposes are real. That he has a disposition to save sinners. And, and moreover, that this offer of the gospel is indeed and genuinely to whosoever. Uh, friend, it's a wonderful text in that regard. The Pharisee is urged to comply with the gospel call on these two wonderful grounds. The offer is real. And God's saving disposition towards sinners is real as well. What this text teaches us, friend, then, in first point is that Christ, he's freely offered, sincerely offered to sinners. We need to make this very clear, friend, especially in a text like ours. As here the Lord stresses this loving and this saving disposition in God. Uh, we, need to, we need to be very clear that we understand what Christ is saying here. First of all, we need to recognize that there is a divine disposition to save sinners. God desires man's salvation. And I'm going to be very pointed with you. I, I don't intend to be controversial. But, but friend, I want you to recognize that that statement not at all contradicts unconditional election. Uh, one's Calvinism not, is not at all contradicted by what this text teaches. No, friend, what you and I are to remember is a simple distinction that has always been maintained by the Reformed and always taught in sacred scripture. And that is that in the divine will, there is a will of approbation and then there is a will that is effectual. In terms of the effectual will, we look to things like unconditional election. Where, where we recognize that there God does save some, chooses from eternity to save some and not others. That's his will that's effectual. But friend, in this text, you and I are also to see here that will of approbation in which God generally delights in something or some work. And that, friend, is primary to the text. What you and I are supposed to see here is that that God actually loves the salvation of sinners. That is a general approbation 
for the conversion of men. And you see that in the text that we read this morning. Again, Ezekiel 18. Have I any pleasure at all in the wicked, that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Famously, Ezekiel 33.11. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And all of that is the same tone and tenor of our text this morning. Christ would assure the Pharisee that God delights in the salvation of sinners. He would urge upon the Pharisee to keep that before him at this juncture. And friend, why is that? Why is it that here you and I are supposed to understand this will of approbation that, that God indeed delights in conversion itself? Well, friend, what you and I are to see in this text, what sinners are supposed to see in the gospel call, is something of the character of God, his intrinsic goodness, his wisdom, his love. One divine put it this way, Thomas Manton. He says, mercy like live honey droppeth of its own accord from God. He is forced to the other, that is to wrath. It is wrested from him. God's primary end is the conversion of a sinner. His secondary end, the honor of his vindictive justice. I don't know if we even, I don't know if people teach that anymore, to be honest with you. In fact, in the Westminster Divines, as these things were being discussed, Anthony Burgess very pointedly said, you and I, we need to remember and quoting texts like the ones I've just said before you, that God delights more in the conversion of sinners than in the manifestation of his vindictive justice. Though yes, God does all of his pleasure, and in one sense does delight in the exercise of his wrath. Friend, what this text teaches us is precisely what Manton has said. The conversion of sinners, the salvation of sinners... It is like live honey dropping of its own accord from God. Friend, that's what the Pharisee would have set before him this morning. I want you to notice that there are so many texts that teach this very thing. Take just a few. Lamentations 3.33 He doth not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. Isaiah 26, after a panoply of divine wrath, he says this, Fury is not in me. Let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Then Micah 7, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because... He delighteth in mercy. Friend, when we think about the divine will of approbation, we are to see as this text and these other texts teach us so very pointedly that God delights more in the conversion, the salvation of sinners. I want you to notice, friend, that that is what's displayed then in Christ's first advent. What you see here is a saving overtures made offered to whosoever shall believe. And friend, that is a free and a legitimate offer 
It's a free and legitimate offer, but we'll come to that in a moment's time. As we look at this text, friend, what is the Pharisee to see? Well, he's to see the very same thing that the disciples see in Matthew 23, where Christ says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. My friend, what do we make of that? The eternal Son of God incarnate, weeping over those who were reprobate, who from eternity were, were to be excluded from the decree of election. So, so what do we make of that? Well, Anthony Burgess again is very helpful. These tears were not crocodile's tears, as some say the Calvinists make them. For though Christ as God had not decreed the conversion of the Jews, yet the thing itself was approved of and commanded. And as the minister of the New Testament, he affectionately desired it. Friend, I want you to recognize that that's the very thing that the Pharisees are prized of in our text. God delights in the salvation of sinners. And in the first advent of Christ, we see that placarded so very clearly. That brings us, friend, not only to an assurance that God's love is there but, and, and God's saving disposition is present, but we also are to see here that the acquittal is real. The text reads, the world through, that the world through him might be saved, and then he that believeth in him is not condemned. Now, friend, I want you to recognize that this is not hypothetical. I think our English translation sometimes would lead some to think that, that that it's as though Christ here was to effect a redemption that was only possible. That's not what the text teaches at all. I want you to notice without going into detail that the text here is in the subjunctive mood, uh, meaning that this is given to us, as it were, passively, and also given to us in a sense uh, that that we would see it as being causative. Uh, Just a few texts to illustrate. When Christ says in John 15, 24, You have seen and hated both me and my Father, but this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled. Well, friend, that's the same mood that we have in our text, that the world through him might be saved. The word might there in these two texts are not about a possibility. They are, as it were, demonstrating causality. Again, just for another example, Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, again in the subjunctive mood, then shall ye also appear with him. That again is not referring to possibility. What it's doing here is demonstrating again causality or order. And even if we look at verse 16 of John chapter 3, again note what he says there, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Well, friend, No one would teach that one who believes that their salvation is only possible, though it's still the subjunctive mood there. So all of this to say, friend, that what you're supposed to see in verse 17, well, it's not a possibility of redemption. Here the subjunctive mood is to be taken as demonstrating order or causality. And then the text tells us, that this sending of Christ and his work accomplished affects this, 
that those who believe would not be condemned. Literally, that they would not be judged. That they would be acquitted for Christ's sake. Now friend, what this text teaches us then is that faith really interests believers in full pardon. Christ did not give a hypothetical redemption. The Lord God offers not a hypothetical to sinners if they lay hold of Christ. No, faith really interests believers in full pardon. And I want you to notice, friend, in this text, that this is quite a remarkable thing. Again, Nicodemus was concerned before, what must man do to be born again? He stresses the agency of man. Where here, friend, you notice that Nicodemus is called to believe. He's called but to believe. Now it's true that to the natural man this is an impossible work. Faith is not something exercised in the breast of the unconverted. But I think it's important for us, we who are reformed, to remember that this is a staggering thing. It is just to look and to live, and one shall be saved. It is but believe, and thou shalt have life. William Guthrie, on this point, I think is very helpful. Illustrating an aspect I think we often underemphasize. He says, this acting of the heart on Christ is not so difficult a thing as is conceived. Shall that be judged a mysterious, difficult thing which doth consist much in one's desire? If men have but an appetite, they have it. For they are blessed that hunger after righteousness. Such a thing faith is, not less. Know what Guthrie is saying. Though, of course, it is the case that without regeneration, none will exercise faith. Friend, for those who are regenerate, faith is like one exhaling, inhaling for the first time. It is something that consists, as he says here, much in desire. Because the new nature now is so inclined to Christ. And so, friend, it is a staggering thing that it is but look and live. Believe and thou shalt have life. That brings us, friend, from the acquittal to the arraignment. And this perhaps is the point that you and I should emphasize as we leave this text. Christ in verse 18 says, He that believeth not is condemned already. What you're supposed to see there is that the sentence has already been pronounced. He has not been executed but he stands already under condemnation. And then he says this, it is so because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now if we've been paying attention to this text, and I mean from the end of chapter 2 on to this point, you and I recognize that Christ here says something that's quite striking. If you go back to verse 23, he says that there were those in Jerusalem who believed in his name. But with regard to their professions, Christ says he did not believe them. And so what you find in this text is a distinction. There is a way to believe in Christ's name that is saving, that brings one out from under condemnation, and a way of believing in his name that is not true, that is, as it were, a false faith. And what Christ here urges is the true. In other words, Nicodemus's profession 
though howsoever high, howsoever illustrious it might have been, it is not sufficient. It is an unfeigned faith alone that here is required. And without that unfeigned faith, says Christ, the man, the woman stands condemned. Now, friend, I want you to notice that this is so very crucial to what we've said up to this point. First of all, and to refer primarily to my Protestant Reformed brethren, uh, this text is quite problematic to those who deny the free offer. You see, friend, if, if the offer was not genuine, if it was not a legitimate offer from God, then how could this text be true? How could man be culpable for accepting that which is not an offer at all? Now, in Christ's account, it's very clear. The offer that was given was genuine, and therefore men are culpable for their unbelief. Therefore they stand condemned. Again, friend, if the offer was not legitimate, there could be no culpability here. But to press this even further, friend, what you and I are to see then is that those calls in Deuteronomy 30, what we read in Romans 10, those are genuine calls to whosoever hears them. And that if they reject them, Friend, here Christ's warning stands over them. But the aggravation of that rejection, friend, is striking. It's striking in a way perhaps that we don't necessarily see it at first brush. It's striking because in this text, Christ tells us why this condemnation is so great. It's because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He could have simply said, they did not believe in my name. And theologically, that would have been the same in substance. But that's not what the Lord says here. He emphasizes his special relation to the Father. He emphasizes here his identity, his unique identity as the eternal Son of God. And friend, that demonstrates the high aggravation of unbelief. It's guilt. Allow me to illustrate this just briefly, friend. If if you and I, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us not to refuse the gift of a king, what do you make of one who refuses not the gift of a creator only, but the son of the living God? If, If it were in dignity, to refuse the gift of an earthly king. What kind of indignity is heaped upon God by sinners? Not to refuse some creaturely blessing, but to refuse the eternal son. Friend, we need to stop thinking about unbelief as though it were some small thing. We need to stop thinking about unbelief purely in terms of the judgment that that sinners are liable to if they remain in it. We need to think about unbelief as this text would lead us to see it as a high and aggravated sin. Because, friend, it is a very direct, a very direct rejection of Christ. It is a despite to the Divine Son. A friend, we close as we seek to apply this text 
by first asking questions about our thoughts of God. In verses 16 and 17, Christ is careful to emphasize God's saving disposition. Friend, I have to ask you, do you have low thoughts of the grace, the goodness, the long-suffering, and the patience of God this morning? Do you have a low view of the wideness of his mercy, the depth of his long-suffering? If so, friend, you need to lay all of those low thoughts at this text. And you need to rejoice in a God whose goodness, whose mercy, whose grace is far above and beyond what you and I could ever quantify. Those texts that I read before, fury is not in me. He delighteth in mercy. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Friend, for those who are hearing the gospel call, Christ would have those texts and those ideas set before them as well. The one who offers them Christ does so not begrudgingly and not in a miserly way. He delights in converting sinners. And friend, in that sense, in the sense of his will of approbation, Friend, no sinner desires conversion more than God desires conversion. No sinner delights in converting grace more than God delights in converting grace. But the second question we have to ask is not about our thoughts of God only. We need to also ask about our thoughts of faith. Friend, do you recognize that you are under obligation to believe? And you are culpable for your unbelief. The same one who forbids murder forbids unbelief. And friend, moreover, if you hear these calls and you do not believe, what greater despite can you do to the living God than to reject the free offer of his son? Rightfully, friend, your condemnation is there unless you believe. The comfort of this text is manifold. Friend, the offer, the offer is to whosoever will. And it's a genuine offer. It's a legitimate offer. And beloved, that means then that the only ones who are excluded who hear it are those who are excluded by their own unbelief. There's nothing in the offer itself that excludes one soul but one's unbelief. And friend, also you're, you're to see in this text that Christ would have his people remember that our God delights in saving souls. And the first coming of Christ was evidence of that. Indeed, it's demonstration. But I want to stop, friend, just for a moment as we leave verses 16 and 17. We won't be returning to them tonight. I want to start by emphasizing another element of this text that we could quickly forget. When Nicodemus was told here, these saving purposes that are so clearly spelled for us in this text are staggering truths. I know we're familiar with them, 
But friend, we shouldn't forget how staggering they really are. And to illustrate how staggering they really are to us, I want to read to you from the Haggadah Barashit. It's a work written by Jews in the Middle Ages, largely um, in effort to keep alive their traditions as they were scattered throughout the nations, but also in response to Christianity. In one portion of this text, you find these words. It's a question. The rabbi asks, would God, if he had a son, have given him up and not instead overthrown the world and made it desolate and empty? I want you to pause just for a moment, friend, because... What you and I are supposed to see there is that the, fair, that the rabbi, in one sense, he got it. He recognized how staggering these texts really are. He's saying very pointedly, it doesn't make sense to him that Jehovah, who has such a lovely, such an altogether wonderful and perfect son, would give him up for a world. Would it not stand to reason that he would destroy the world rather than give his son? Friend, that's the staggering truth in this text. That God did precisely the opposite. For believers, this is your great comfort. Friend, he did not do what you and I and natural men might think he should. That he gave up such a son. That we who are a company of hell-deserving sinners might be saved. And so, friend, also see in this text that not only did he do it, but he did it because he delights in mercy. And for that, you and I should be eternally thankful. For that, our praises should be all the more voiced. For that, friend, our worship should be marked with untold joy. And so, friend, the exhortation is to believe. You are given so many, so many encouragements to do so. And you're also given the command. And the command also subjoined to this text is that you are to rejoice. That the Lord who is God is so good, so gracious, delights in mercy. May we be a people who praise him from the heart through Jesus Christ because of these truths. Amen.